Today on the podcast, we are happy to welcome Sung Hoo Kim. Sung Hoo is the vice president at Pomelo, and Pomelo is a startup remittances company looking to disrupt Western Union and the rest of the global remittances industry. Uh, but I know him better as my old friend from college and my former roommate, uh, or at least I think the first year after college when I was in law school and Sung Hu was working as a management consultant at Monitor Company. And we were living together in Somerdale, Massachusetts. Sung Hu, welcome to the podcast. Joe, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background, uh, who you are, where you come from, and uh, a little more about your company. Yeah. So my background is I live in San Francisco, and I've been working in the technology sector for a number of years. I uh, started my career in tech at Google way back in the day. Uh, I worked on Android when it was first being released to the world. So this is way back in the uh, the late aughts. And then from there, my career moved on to Twitter, uh, where I was uh, working on Twitter's transition from, I don't know if you guys remember this, when uh, most people spent their time on a computer on a, in front of the computer, and then we moved to mobile devices. So uh, I did a lot of work at Twitter transitioning the Twitter experience from desktop to mobile. And um, the the most recent stints in my career, I've been really interested in financial access and empowerment. Um, and I thought that was something that I was really interested in, personally passionate about, um, had personal meaning to me. And so that led me to go work at a firm, um, which is now a public company. Uh, I joined when the product was still evolving. Uh, it's now best known for what's called buy now, pay later. And now I'm at Pomelo, which is uh, a small company. We call it a startup, an early stage startup. We've got about 25 employees total. And uh, yeah, I'm a vice president there. I lead uh, the product team. So kind of figuring out like what the Pomelo product is to consumers. And I'm also helping out with engineering at this time. Have a summer internship at Yahoo uh, when you were in grad school. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. I did. Back when Yahoo was a thing. So people appreciate. At every stage in this journey, uh, Sunghu was leaving one job, which was a great job, to go to some unknown company. Uh, really, you know, taking a risk. Um, and I remember, you know, when he left Yahoo to go to Google, Yahoo was the dominant search engine at the time. Google was nothing. When he left Google to go to uh, Twitter, um, I had never heard of Twitter. Uh, nobody had. Um, uh, when he left, and by the way, let's point out that he got out of Twitter way before Elon Musk uh, came in. Important to know when to get in, also important to know when to get out. 
And similarly, when he left Twitter and went to a firm, I never heard of a firm. First, I saw of it. He was wearing an affirm jacket on a guy's trip one year. Uh, and now, when I do my Christmas shopping online, everything I buy, there's an affirm option, a buy now, pay later option. Um, which is a long way of me saying, even before we get into uh, a deep dive into Pomelo, um, just based on Sun Hu's track record, Pomelo's chances of going public and becoming a huge success are quite good. Thank you, Joe. I'm hopeful for it. I'm pretty optimistic myself. That's great to hear. So tell us about your current project. What is Pomelo? What's the idea behind Pomelo? Yeah, so the idea behind Pomelo is that since the beginning of time, people have moved and traveled from place to place. And when they've traveled, um, they've had to send money um, from one place to another. You could be sending it for business purposes, but often you're sending it for personal reasons, to send it to family, to siblings, you know, people who've moved from the home country to another country. And America in particular is a pretty unique place because it is a country of immigrants. We've attracted folks from all corners of the world. And great story about America is you come here, you build a better life for yourself. And for a lot of people, that means they're now in a position where they can send money back home. They can help their mom. They can help their cousin. Uh, because they're financially able to do so. And, uh, you know, we estimate that over $200 billion is sent from the U.S. every year back uh, to a home country. And the way that you do that really hasn't changed that much is typically, you know, in the back, in, in the, the, the original way to do that was like you go to a physical store. Uh, the classic example is Western Union. You drop off cash at Western Union. And somewhere halfway around the globe, you have your relative pickup cash at another Western Union. And then the internet came and you're allowed to then do that from your computer, but you're still essentially sending cash. The technology underpinning that has changed, but you're still essentially sending cash in your bank account to another. And the insight behind Pomelo is, well, why do you have to send cash? Uh, why can't you send credit? And it's a very, I think in some ways, a unique American thing because the credit system in America is so rich and enormous and abundant. And, um, you know, you can talk about the pros and cons of access to credit, but I think in general, it's been a good, it's been a good for pe allowing people to improve their standard of living, being able to make big purchases, whether it's buying a home or a car, um, Buying gifts for Christmas. And of course, you want to be financially responsible and you only want to spend what's, uh, what's within your means, but it ultimately extends your purchasing power. And so the idea behind Pomelo is why can't we extend the credit system in the United States to help people who are trying to help their family back in their home country? And so um, that's what we set out to do. And that's what our product does. And so rather than trying to send money from your bank account by going to a website, what we actually allow you to do is, you know, you come to our app, you sign up for a Pomelo account. Within minutes, um, you know, we approve, you, we approve everyone. And um, then you are given the opportunity to add up to three family members in your home country. Uh, we started out with the Philippines, and I can tell you in a little bit why we've chosen the Philippines. But you can add up to three, you know, family members in the Philippines. And then from there, um, once those family members have set up their accounts, uh, we actually send uh, a credit card. To those family members, uh, we ship by air, get it delivered to the door by courier, 
And now those individuals um, are able to um, to spend. And the person in the U.S. who set up the account originally, you know, their name is on the account. They're responsible for the account. They pay the bill every month. But then they actually get to uh, instantly provide spending power to their relatives. And so the benefit for, for this is that it's, it's, it's instant, right? And you have like incredible control. You have transparency in terms of how your money is spent. You know, in the past, of course, you had to trust the people that you're spending, sending to. You're sending, let's say, $100 every week. And you're hoping that they're sending it, spending it on groceries and necessities as opposed to other things. Um, but the, the other thing is that for the people in um, the Philippines, which is where we set it up, of course, um, you know, they also have um, a really safe, always available source of spending that allows them to get their basic necessities. You know, typically when you send money today, um, whether it's a Western Union or some other incarnations of that type of service, you have to pay a fee. And it's typically a percentage of the amount that you, you send. And it can really add up. When you're talking about sending $1,000 a month and you're paying 3% every time, you could be spending hundreds of dollars in fees. And what we do is, well, because we're a credit product, we don't make money based on us, like money being sent. Because we're not actually sending anything. We make money when you spend, just like any other credit card. So when, whenever you and I or anyone else in the U.S. is using a credit card, you might have an annual fee, but you can actually find no annual fee credit cards. And the credit card company will make money every time you spend. That merchant pays a percentage, which then gets allocated to the credit card company, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's how we make money. Every time someone spends in the Philippines, the account holder, uh, they're saving a significant amount, um, you know, percentage points. And again, like the more you send, the more you save with Pomelo. So yeah, that's the idea. The, it's the, the inspiration for Pomelo is to help immigrants, help them with a very basic need that uh, many, many people in the U.S. have experienced, and then provide a product that we hope is, is really helpful for them, super convenient. Um, and makes a lot more sense than the way they've been doing it in the past. Now, you're an immigrant yourself, right? So how old were you when, when your family came over? Weren't you like four or five when your family came over from Korea? That's right. I was four years old. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that somebody who was native-born and had not lived through the immigrant experience and didn't have family uh, back in the old country and here in America, that they would understand the remittances problem and the the flaws in the, the existing remittance system. So, I mean, you tell me, to what extent do you think your uh, life experience as an immigrant has informed the work you do at Pamela? So I would say, I mean, first of all, um, well, what we're doing at Pamela really is personally meaningful to me for the reasons that you mentioned. You know, I, I, I myself come from an immigrant family. Uh, my family and I, we built our lives here. Um, and I'm really thankful for having had the opportunity to be able to, to grow up in the United States. And I think you're absolutely right. Of course, like, uh, no country is perfect. Um, you know, this country has its flaws and areas that it needs to and can improve on. Um, but there's a lot of great things about the United States. And I think the idea that so many people have come here um, every year, but over the course of the last, you know, over the, over the course of years and decades, 
and have, you know, built up their standard of living and want to use that to help, I think is really, it's really great. And if we can provide a service that allows all these people to do that in a better way, um, and I think we are, and I think we will do that, um, that is really, really satisfying to me. And uh, you're right. I think um, on the one hand, like a lot of people don't have firsthand experience sending money, but a lot of people do, right? And, you know, we have people who've come to the U.S. from all corners of the world, whether it's from Asia or Latin America, Africa, Europe, etc. And whenever I've talked to people uh, who are immigrants and I tell them about the but what Pomelo aims to do and the product that we built, there's very frequently this aha, like, wow, that's great. Like, this has been such a pain for me. And I just assume that's, that's how it is. And the fact that you guys have come up with a different way, like, I'm, I'm eager to give it a try. Um, and so that, that says we're on the right path. And of course, you have to start somewhere. So we're not serving all markets and we don't have a, you know, the product that we're going to end up having in five to 10 years. Um, you know, we started with serving uh, the immigrant community from the Philippines. Um, and, uh, but our aim is that just as people have come from all these different countries to the U.S. and then they're now sending money back to those countries, we aim to be a, a, a global, com- global company as well. And we aim to, to serve these people uh, from all these different countries. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Here's another question for you. To what extent has Silicon Valley informed what you're doing at Pamela? Right? Because Silicon Valley gets a lot of criticism uh, of the following format, which is that you're just reinventing the wheel. You're just taking something that already existed and you're sticking some sort of high-tech label on top of it, and you're not really solving any problems. Uh, But here, I think you guys are making a better product. You are solving problems in the remittances industry. Uh, You're getting rid of transfer fees. Um, You're uh, enabling people to send credit and not cash. Um, and arguably, that's by doing it cheaper and by doing it uh, in a, an arguably bigger way with the credit, you know, because people tend to be able to use credit to uh, extend their financial capacity, um, you're improving remittances. To what extent is California innovation, Silicon Valley, to what extent does that play into it? Yeah, I think the other thing that's really interesting, that there's kind of like the the people side in terms of what we're doing, like serving this group. There's a product side of things in terms of offering something that's different and new to serve people with an age-old problem that they've had. Then there's also the technology side of things. And you, you mentioned the Silicon Valley approach. That's something I want to highlight too, because, you know, you may have heard of this term fintech, right? Financial technology. And what we've seen over the last, I don't know, last 10 or 15 years 
is an explosion of new companies that consider themselves fintechs that are trying to offer kind of new ways uh, or new products in addition to the traditional financial services products that you might get, whether it's banking products or credit products or investment advisory products. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is kind of rethinking how do we serve people with, let's say, new products, but a lot of it is also how do we use new technologies. And I think the new technology piece that I, that's worth calling out um, is that now um, you have all these, well, there's companies like Pomelo, which are serving consumers. But then Pomelo itself, like a lot of other consumer-facing fintechs, are using uh, the services of other startups. And so we don't have to like build this stuff all ourselves. And what I mean by that is like to run a consumer-facing financial services company, you have to be able to do a lot of different things. Like, you know, someone wants to create an account. You need to verify their identity. Just by law in the United States, you need to know that the person is who they say they are. Um, if you're lending money, you need to be able to understand that this person is like um, a legitimate actor and not temp not going to attempt to defraud you. If you're lending money, you need to know that the person has a reasonable likelihood that they're going to pay you back, that they have the means to do so. Um, and if you're lending money in the case of Pomelo, then you need a way for to be able to accept payment, right? So if someone wants to pay you back with, uh, like the you know a transfer from the bank account or the debit card, like you need to be able to accept that payment. So there's now like an ecosystem of companies, um, both old companies and the new companies, but Pomelo, like a lot of other consumer-facing fintechs, uses the services of other fintech startups, um, and that's enabled us to be able to focus on the the people problem and the consumer facing product problem uh, and not have to build all the technology ourselves from scratch or have to rely on what I would consider to be legacy service providers that may not work as well with uh, kind of the, the mindset and the speed um, of a newer company like Camilla. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is it that you think makes Silicon Valley and the Bay Area such a hotbed of innovation? Why does it seem like a disproportionate number of startups come out of the Silicon Valley area, startups like Pomelo? Yeah, I mean, you, you've alluded to a lot of the ingredients for why this exists. Um, and I mean, I, it's, I think it's undeniable that for years, the, the center of gravity has been in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Of course, now I think, you know, there's been some distribution, um, diffusion of that. You know, you have pockets of tech companies in, let's say, New York. Um, you know, you've seen some movement to places like Austin or Miami. And I think it's still too early to tell, like, how big those places are going to be. Certainly, you have pockets and communities of activity in Europe and elsewhere. But in terms of critical mass, I mean, without a doubt, it's still San Francisco. And, um, and, and the Bay Area, I would say. Um, so that includes the, the, the broader metropolitan area surrounding San Francisco. You'll hear towns like Palo Alto, Mountain View, Oakland, um, and you have a lot of companies that are based in these areas. And so I think you know, some of it may be um, the fact that we've got several world-class uh, universities uh, in, in Berkeley and in Stanford that are in this area. Um, you've got decades of 
companies that have been started, grown, um, become very successful. And then they've graduated these alums who've then gone on and either joined other companies or started their own companies. Um, and that has been supported by uh, an enormous uh, an investment community that is focused on investing in um, in startups um, from from the first days, you know, from from day zero of these startups. And you've seen innovation even in the investment side from what was traditional venture capital. Then you've got now like you know Y Combinator, now known as YC, uh, has been a huge propellant of change. I would say over the last ten fifteen years. You've seen the emergence of um, large. Um, uh, you've seen the emergence of seed stage investing, which now you know happens before it was traditionally the first uh, phase called Series A. Now you have something called pre-seed. Uh, you have individuals with deep pockets who are serving as angel investors or like getting together as part of syndicate. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening on the investment side too. And uh, yeah, it's a a lot of like positive feedback loops in terms of the, the, the talent, in terms of the people, in terms of the money. Uh, and there's also, you can't discount the culture. Um, the, the culture here is very, very amenable to starting new companies. It's forward-looking, uh, it's optimistic, and uh, it's risk-taking, right? So it's one where um, taking on challenges is celebrated. And if the startup does not succeed, it's not necessarily, you know, the the scarlet letter that's going to, you know, ruin the rest of your professional career, as it might in some other areas. Um, so I think that's something that's really interesting, too. Tell me how Pamela was funded. Are you guys bootstrapped? Do you have angel investors? Do you have venture capital? Where is Pamela getting its money from? We are funded through uh, outside investors, and we have uh, raised money through a combination of individuals. Um, you know, they're typically known as angel investors, uh, as well as institutional uh, venture capital firms. And um, yeah, so we have um, officially raised uh, a seed round, what they call kind of like the initial round of funding. And um, yeah, we've got a number of folks who put money into Pamela. And so it's a pretty classic path here, at least in the Bay Area. It's a pretty classic path. Um, and so, yeah, the life cycle of, um, of a typical San Francisco tech startup is that you might start by raising uh, money initially from, from friends and family. Um, you may skip that and you may go directly to what's called a, a seed or pre-seed stage. And that's where, you know, people will give you money, uh, let's say, based on an idea. Uh, or a plan, maybe it's a prototype or a demo of a product, um, and they're you know they're putting money to help you fund, and they're you know in 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 return for the money they're getting a certain amount of ownership for of the company, and what you as a startup want to do is then make progress, and there are kind of known milestones depending on the type of startup you are. So let's say as a consumer startup, you're serving individuals as opposed to businesses that you want to then take this idea and actually build a product. Um, and that product, and you want to start serving customers. And that kind of traction in the marketplace will be the proof that you need to then be able to go and raise more money. So you typically don't raise all the money you need for the entire life of a startup upfront. You're going to raise 
enough money to get you to the next milestone that you need to achieve as a company on your path to success. And the ultimate goal, of course, is to you're talking about different rounds of funding. And so what that the, the different rounds of funding allow um, you to do is as a as a as a company allow you to take only the amount of funding that you need and only give up the amount of ownership in the company that you need to hit the next milestone. As an investor, it allows you to de-risk, right? So you don't want to take all the risk. You're going to say, hey, I'm going to take a certain amount of risk. And in terms of certain amount of risk, I'm going to give you a certain amount of money. And um, this amount of risk I'll take is enough to see you to get to that next milestone. And then as you continue to hit milestones and you can continue to raise more money, um, and more money. And typically, like, you know, what you want to do is you want to be a successful company. You want to be a self-sustaining company that doesn't need to raise uh, money, raise funds from external investors. Um, and, you know, a common path is to take what is a private company and become a public company, one that is traded um, on an exchange like the NASDAQ website or the New York Stock Exchange. Um, or you may just, this, I mean, you may decide to uh, stay private, but Typically, when you're raising money from outside investors, institutional investors, they want you to be able to go public because that will then give them the opportunity to get the kind of return. They call it liquidity, right? So uh, when you're public, then you're traded on the stock market. Now your ownership share, it can be easily exchanged and sold. Whereas when you're not a public company, you're still a private company, um, you know, your ownership stake in a company, not as easily sold. There's no marketplace. There's no kind of like publicly agreed upon price, et cetera, et cetera. Are there norms here? Are there expectations on what a founder, how much equity a founder will give up in exchange for an investment on how much return on investment uh, a venture capital company might expect um, for their money? Uh, are there expectations and norms regarding when there will be liquidity? You know, when a venture capital uh, company expects that a startup will go public. Talk to me about that based on your experience. Yeah, there are absolutely norms. Um, I think the norms will vary depending on the type of startup. So, you know, broadly speaking, you have startups which are um, serving business customers and you have startups that are serving, you know, consumers. Um, and then you might have different types of startups serving each, whether it's like an e-commerce startup or a fintech startup, or let's say a pure consumer internet startup. Um, and the norms, I think, do exist with regard from both the perspective of the, the company, um, you know, typically talk about the founder CEO and from the perspective of the investor, just in terms of um, what are the business milestones you expect to see from a company at each stage. Um, and there might be typical like uh, numbers and metrics that you hope to see, whether it's in terms of like revenues or users. Um, and then when you're raising money, then there's typical ranges at each round, like how much, what percentage of the company you're typically giving uh, as a, of, of the total value of the company. Uh, and that total value of the company will usually be determined by kind of these benchmarks, these metrics versus other benchmarks, whether it's in terms of the, the number of revenues or the amount of users or revenue growth, things like that. Um, I think the thing to note too is that those ranges will vary over time. And so you might have some periods where there's just um, a lot more money chasing fewer startups. Um, so they typically tend to be more founder company friendly. 
And so these founders and companies can raise more money at more favorable terms. Um, and there might be times where maybe it's more investor friendly. And um, I think we've seen both of these stages in the past five years. I would say during the pandemic, there was just a tremendous amount of money going into startups. Uh, there's a lot of excitement with regard to taking startups public. So there's a clear path for investors to be able to see their uh, investments um, become liquid. And, um, and so valuations tended to go higher and tended to have more uh, investors chasing, you know, um, a company. And then I think in the past year and a half or so, as monetary conditions have tightened, interest rates have gone up, uh, investors have become much more um, scrutinized their investments more. Uh, they've demanded um, uh, more conservative terms. And uh, yeah, so it's a bit of a, a cycle. And you've seen that over the past few decades. So you know, like boom, like in any other market. So you know, we've seen boom and bust in the startup sector uh, over the past few decades. And going back, you can talk about like the dot com boom and bust in the early late nineties and early aughts. And then after that, you had um, the great financial crisis and the great recession in what two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and the startup environment also had gone up and then down. And then there's a long, long period of growth, I would say, after the great financial crisis um, through and then the really spiked up during the pandemic. And then it's been more plateaued to down over the past, I would say, 12, 18 months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so why the Philippines? You had mentioned that the Philippines is Pamela's first market. Why is that? Yeah, there's a few reasons why I decided to focus. I mean, the first thing is we wanted to focus on one market as opposed to going to all markets. And the idea was, hey, let's actually build a product that we know can work in the Philippines, and then we can figure out how to then expand and scale it uh, to other markets. But the Philippines specifically, I would say there's probably, you know, there's two reasons. Uh, first of all, our founder and CEO, Eric Frankiel, um, you know, his, his wife uh, is from a Filipino family. Uh, he's gotten close to her family. He's traveled to the Philippines quite a bit. So we actually had a lot of personal knowledge of the remittance. Um, experience because they, you know, he and his wife send money to her family back in the Philippines. So they've, they've, they've seen what it's like using traditional remitters. They've been to the Philippines. So they know what um, the, you know, to a certain extent, what the experience is like for the recipients of these funds. Um, Eric saw, you know, visiting the Philippines pre-pandemic, the, you know, the increased adoption of credit cards and acceptance of credit cards. And I think all of those things helped uh, inspire um, the insight around uh, behind Pomelo. So I think that's one one thing. Uh, so personal knowledge and insight and experience with this particular corridor. And I would say the second reason is that um, you know you can build a product in the Philippines in English. So there's a lot of different local languages, but English English is the the lingua franca franca uh, franca, and it's commonly used in business, and it's also commonly used in customer communications. So we didn't have a need to translate the product, the marketing, the, the support. Um, and so that meant like lower friction, a lower barrier for us as, as a first market. Um, I would say uh, the third, the, there's actually a third consideration that I should mention, which is like the, the Philippines is a pretty big remittance market for, from the U.S. So you've got um, several million people uh, who have immigrated from the Philippines to the United States um, it's highly concentrated in a few different uh, metropolitan areas and states, including California. Uh, there's a city called Daly City just south of San Francisco, which I believe um, 
I think this is correct. It has got the largest congregation of uh, people of Filipino descent outside of the Philippines. And um, also, if you look at kind of um, wealth levels and average income, Filipino immigrants tend to be pretty high up. So in terms of having the funds to send, uh, they were very attractive market. We should point out that that didn't just happen. Uh, the reason that many people in the Philippines speak English is that the Philippines were a colony of the United States. And that was a terrible thing. Uh, a lot of people died because of the racism and paternalism and religious prejudice of William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft and the soldiers under their command. Um, you know, if you go back and you look at the history of the Filipino-American War, uh, it is a terrible history uh, with a lot of um, misconduct uh, on both sides, primarily on the on the side of the United States Army, um, United States military, I should say. Uh, but even uh, evil deeds have unexpected consequences. And thank God the Philippines have their independence now. Um, and because of that legacy of colonialism, a lot of people in the Philippines are bilingual and speak English, uh, which provides, you know, some opportunities that might not otherwise exist. That's right. <laughs> you know, Pomelo may not have started with any particular climate change angle. But I will tell you, as a financial advisor who specializes in climate change investment, I will tell you that this migration issue that you're working on, yes, it's been around forever, but it is getting bigger. It is increasing because people are moving from parts of the planet that are less habitable parts of the planet that are more habitable. And as you know, the, the climate changes, what's habitable and, what's, and what isn't changes as well. And people are, are essentially forced to move. And so I think Pomelo is working on a very important problem, uh, how to make the migration process uh, better for people. Um, both the people who uh, leave and the people who are left behind uh, because not everybody can move. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's sort of obvious that, uh, you know, you move to a new country, America, let's say, um, your standard of living improves, uh, but it's less obvious that you can improve the standard of living of those left behind. Uh, by sending money back to the to your friends and family in the old country, um, so you're doing you're doing God's work, us. Yeah, um, I did not know that, and um, yeah, I'm actually curious to learn a bit more about this. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'll I'll send you some some reports from the United Nations on the uh, climate change migration issue. And that can be a little a little light reading for you over your, over over your holiday. Yeah, I would love to read that. 
All right, Sung Hoo. Well, I know you've got other obligations, so I'm going to let you go. But I, I do want to say thank you for coming on the podcast and for teaching our audience and me uh, about the, the startup industry in general and about remittances and Pomelo in particular. Sung Hoo, thank you. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure being on your podcast. Enjoyed talking to you and telling you about Pomelo. And uh, yeah, all the best with the podcast. And you're going to hear the future episodes as well. All right, take care. You have a good one. Here are a few relevant facts. Based on the Global Climate Risk Index from 2020, the Philippines is the second most vulnerable country in the world to climate change. 2% of the Filipino population lives in coastal areas and will be forced to move if there is a one meter sea rise. Uh, it is projected that there will be a one meter sea rise by the end of this century, which will force 60 million people to move from the Philippines. Here's another relevant fact. Remittances as a percentage of GDP in the Philippines is 2.24%, according to the globaleconomy.com, uh, as of 2022. In comparison, remittances as a percent of GDP are 50.95% of the GDP in Tajikistan, which is uh, number one in the world. Uh, perhaps more relevant, it's 33% of the GDP in Samoa, 27% uh, of the GDP in Gambia, 26.75% in Honduras, 24% uh, in El Salvador, 20.6% in Nicaragua. There's a wide range here. Um, but as you can see, uh, as Pomelo expands to other markets, its opportunity to have an impact will obviously go up. Um, and arguably, it could have an even bigger impact in some of these other countries where remittances are a bigger part of GDP, presumably because those countries are not quite as developed and economically prosperous as the Philippines are. Here's another way of, of thinking about it. According to the World Bank, in 2020, the Philippines uh, was the number one, two, three, four, was the number fourth country in the world by number of remittance recipients. Uh, put another way, there were 34.9 million people in the Philippines um, receiving remittances in 2020. Uh, what countries ranked higher? Mexico with approximately 43 million, China with approximately 60 million, and India with approximately 83 million remittance recipients. So uh, this gives, uh, you know, the Pomelos of the, of the world some idea, I'm sure they're aware of this, 
um, but my listeners might not be, some idea of what markets they want to expand into next after they, you know, uh, succeed in the Philippines. Another fact, uh, the countries that receive the most remittances have changed over time, but you know what hasn't changed? Which country the remittances are coming from? Since the World Bank started tracking this stuff in 1995, the Number one source of remittances, every time they look at it, is the United States. And just to sum up here, you know, I think that was an extremely interesting conversation with my old friend, Sung Hu. And, you know, I think that Pomelo, uh, although it's not a specifically climate change-driven strategy, is really working on an adaptation measure uh, that will be an important part of the toolkit for dealing with climate change. Right? I mean, you can think of how do we deal with climate change? It's typically put in two, two, two buckets. One bucket is mitigation. Mitigation is getting carbon emissions out of the air, getting carbon emissions down to minimize how much climate change happens. The other bucket is adaptation which is to say a certain amount of climate change is going to happen. And how do we help people deal with that in the best way possible? And I think migration from areas of the planet that are super affected by climate change to areas of the planet that are less affected by climate change is an important piece of that. But if not everybody can move, and not everybody can move for reasons of money, age, attachment to where they come from, opportunities in, in a new place. You know, there are always people left behind. And even though some of those people, even though those people can't physically move, they can still benefit from migration as remittances are sent home to them. And so Pomelo, by improving how remittances happen, uh, is doing its part. Um, to help the world adapt to climate change. And that's a beautiful thing.